Oh, I don't have it in this book because this is part two, right? This was part one. But one of the things I remember was when um, I went on, I remember where I found this chart was on, online with Bruce Hertz Precept Austin that he has and he has charts in there of all you know how he is he has the gift of word of knowledge which is different than word of wisdom word of knowledge is the guy who writes the commentaries I mean so when he pre preaches teaches studies it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant because he gets every minute detail and it's all compacted into you know whatever area he's at so it's just an overabundance of information but in there there's always great nuggets that for me in any given moment pop out right and it's like oh that's exactly what i need so i want to go back to this um isn't that testament with an e also i think so i'm i'm <laughs> yeah. Is that correct? T E S T I M E N T. It is the I. See, you were right. Test A. Oh, see, let's go all through all the vowels. A E I. <laughs> it's not. It's not a U. Okay. Test A uh, meant. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> all right. So, all right. Now that looks better. That does definitely look better. Okay. Um, okay, so he, this particular timeline, the purpose for me having her put this back up here was just to remind you about what information we have looked at as we studied the book of Luke. And for those of you who weren't with us in part one, you would not have been here to, to see this. But this book of Luke begins with uh, pri prior to the birth of Jesus and prior to the birth of John the Baptist. It gives us that historical background, which is unique to the book of Luke, right? Do you guys remember this? Okay. And so, and then it takes us up to, ch I think it's chapter four, where we see Jesus baptized. We see him go to uh, temptation in the wilderness. And then he goes to Nazareth and he makes that pro great proclamation of him fulfilling uh, the scripture of Isaiah, that he reads a, a portion of it, right? That he co he's come to open the eyes of the blind and set the captives free and so forth. So that brings us up to chapter four. That's where that begins. That's where that ends, okay? Then our book of Luke basically omits all of chapter one or all of the first year or maybe a little bit more even of his ministry. Those um, events are recorded in the other synoptic gospels though. So you can go into Matthew, uh, Mark, and John and get a more insights. So that's why those synoptics are so awesome because they'll fill in more details. But Luke skips basically that whole first year or year and a little bit into the, even the second year. And then it picks up in chapter five where we're further down the road. And we, what we saw then when we, we started in chapter five and moved forward was a, was an exponentially picking up of the pace, right? And what is it, do you remember what chapter it is where we see the particular marker that begins his journey to go to Jerusalem? Do you remember what chapter that? Oh, there it is, turning point. Oh, you did it even here. Good for you. I missed it. I didn't, okay, well, see, I didn't even see it on here. Okay, so there's a turning point right uh, in right about in here 
where he 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 kind of focuses a good deal from chapter 9 all the way to 24 which is a huge amount of the book of Luke but he's covering primarily those last 6 months okay so if you don't have that written in your bible somewhere like you know maybe um if you have a precept bible you know an inductive uh, there's a place in the back, there's charts and so forth. You might want to make a note back in there, or you might in the introductory part of your Luke, make yourself a note that Luke primarily covers just the opening part of his life. And then it picks up in chapter nine to all the way to 24 is just those last six months. So that's where you're getting all your information. Isn't that interesting to kind of remember um, and to also see it from that perspective, it helps you see why it is that this author, where he opens the, the, uh, the book telling us what his purpose is for writing, but in light of knowing what he's omitted, it makes it, makes it kind of even more clear, more, more interesting to uh, understand what he's saying. So let's go back today. We're going to start with a quick review. Let's see if I can find my pins. Here's one. All right. Let's do review. First of all, author. What do we know about our author? Luke. Okay. And how do we know Luke? It's that, that it's Luke. What is it connected to that helps us give us the best um, assurance that it is Luke? the book of Acts, because Luke is, is part one. And in Luke itself, he does not identify himself, right? He just, you know, there's, there's hints about who he is. Uh, in the introductory verses one through four, what do we absolutely n know he is or is not? Do you remember? He's not an, a personal eyewitness, which also makes him not what? Not one of the apostles. Right? So I think that's pr quite profound to recall when you go back and think about Luke on the whole. He wasn't a personal eyewitness. However, in some ways, I think his witnesses and his testimony is, is really even maybe more powerful in some ways. Not that it is, but it, it, it elevates it in its importance by how many people must he have had to have interviewed to attain all the information that he recorded. Exactly. And think about um, how many places he had to go. Who, who else? Think of all of the different storylines that we've we've covered so far in this. What are, think of some of the stories that have stood out to you in Luke so far. Can you can you name one? Tell me a, one of the storylines that you especially enjoyed, or or one of the uh, encounters he had with someone that you felt was really profound in your thinking. Yeah. Okay. Right. So that was in chapter. Um, 
7, 10. There we go. In chapter 10. So in chapter 10, when he's sending out the 70, wasn't it? In chapter 9, he's sending out the 12. Is that correct? Have I got that backwards? Okay, so he sends out his inner circle, 12 first. Then he sends out the 70 in the next chapter. So when he does that, that means this author had to have gone and interviewed at least some percentage of those 70 plus a percentage of the you know of the disciples themselves so he had some personal contact did he not with the the eyewitnesses the apostles and with those 70 who were also eyewitnesses to what had transpired so that's pretty strong would you not say as far as a testimony that he's recording um and in some ways the fact that he has the balance of saying well this person said this and this person said this and this person said this and it all matches and it all collaborates or, or supports one another. This strengthens, would you not say, the eyewitness record that he's giving to us? Because he's not just taking one person's perspective and writing it down, which would be his own, which you see in some of the others. They're giving their own personal perspective, and that's what you're getting it from. But his, you're getting it from the perspective of hundreds of eyewitnesses that he's interviewed and taken the information from. And with the checks and balances to it, it would be very easy, would it not, to at some point come across someone and say, well, no, it didn't happen that way. Jesus didn't do that. I didn't see this event. But that never happened. He he made these interviews through all, across the the plane of all these different people, and they all agreed, and they all contributed in a way that either accentuated or strengthened or or exactly matched the things that had already been told him. So I think that that to me is quite profound when you consider this author being Luke, and then the author being Luke is supported to us by the Book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, what do you see in, in that book? How, does it, how do you know that Acts teaches us that Luke is actually the author? What does he say? Yeah, there you go. And then he says, not only that, he says, in my previous writings, I said these things to you. And now I'm going to write to you the next part, right? So he goes, he actually t gives us the answer to the, the assurity that Luke is written by Luke in the book of Acts, by the part two to the story, okay? So I think that's remembered. It's good to remember that. Pardon? Well, it would be when the book, the Bible was canonized, I'm assuming. And they obviously chose the most obvious thing, which would be authorship, you know. You know, speaking of canonizing, you know, there's, there's references of, from Luke, Matthew, and Mark to what they call the Book of Sayings. Some people were trying to compile it as a, a fifth gospel. They, some people even called it the Gospel of God. But um, Luke, Matthew, and Mark, all three drew heavily from the book of sayings. Plus, Luke also drew from the book of Matthew and the book of Mark, too. Yes. They were previous to his. His was the third. <clears throat> right. And John's was the last. 
And, you know, the, and the, the manner in which he, quote, drew from them was he maybe he had some manuscripts of the things that they had previously written, number one, but also simply by the eyewitness as he interviewed them. So he got the story a second time verbatim to what they had already written right in record and so he it's kind of a it's kind of a this to me is like getting a, an uh, a document that's not only been uh affirmed and approved by the different lawyers but the judges come in the big guns and they all give their stamp of approval on it as well so he's really got some big guns behind him that give us assurance that everything that Luke wrote was accurate and the accuracy of it is is exponentially grown in its power and thrust by the fact that there are so many witnesses so many people that he interviewed and it all comes together and fits and when you when you start comparing which we did I know Yoshiko and, and I were talking about the synoptic gospel book that she just purchased which gave her this better view but when you start looking at things synoptically and you see how the stories overlap one another and they're they're telling the same storyline but with slight variations it gives it such credibility to the fact that that is in fact a truth statement of what he's recording. So this to me is the power behind Luke in its uniqueness is that it was written by a man who get, had hundreds and hundreds of eyewitness accounts and um, interviews basically to accumulate what he had. And we see the book of Acts validates and uh, to us that Luke was written by Luke because of what it says in Acts. Acts, he actually identifies himself. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So that's our author. Now, who's our recipient? Theophilus. All right. T-H-E-O-P-H-I-L-U-S. Theophilus. Now, what do we know about Theophilus? And it kind of pertains to the historical purpose for this particular book as well. How was he titled in the opening? Open up to Luke 1. Most excellent Theophilus. So that title, Most Excellent, tells us what? That the title sounds governmental. It could be a position, Most Excellent. What else might it tell us about him? Okay, so it does kind of just, there's a sense of power behind the title there. He's most excellent. It shows a sign of respect in the way that it's conveyed, right? Most excellent. It can also sh indicate that it's literally a title or a position, that he held a title or position. Since it's, it's pot potentially a title or a position, then this is a man of influence. He's a man who's more than the mere commoner, right? Um, and it, le it leads us to speculate a little bit, especially if you go into Acts Part 2. He's writing this for this most excellent Theophilus. For what purpose then? Well, he tells us what his purpose is, right? So what is, what is his purpose for writing? Yeah, I go. So that, that's in 1, 4, is that right? So that you may know um, the exact truth. I love that. About the things taught. 
Now, he doesn't say what things are, those things are in that verse, right? But as you move on into the book, you, you are able to draw out what those things are. What is the major subject in this book? Or who is the major subject, I should say? Jesus. <laughs> okay, that was an easy answer. Okay, so the major subjects here are Jesus. Um, and it, he wants them, therefore, to know the exact truth about the things taught concerning Jesus, right? What is the major title that we've seen in this book for Jesus? The Son of Man. That's the most repeated um, title. Now, can you think of some of the other titles that he is referenced to in Luke that we've covered? The Lord. The Christ. Mas okay, Master. Son of, son of God. Son of David. Okay, now this is really interesting. There's, uh, <clears throat> I don't think I, mar I marked it. <clears throat> I don't remember which reference it is. I've, I've got a list here for you on the chart that I'm going to send to you of a variety of places where he uses his title, Son of Man. And there's one of them where it's in three places. He uses them interchangeably. He starts with Son of Man, then he moves into the Christ, then he moves into the to Son of David. Something like that. I think it's those are the three that were used there. And it's all in one little place. What does that tell you when you see the, the, the flow of thought move from one title to the next title to the next title? What is that kind of telling you then? Yeah. Yes. So he is doing that. As a matter of fact, there was one uh, segment that we covered, I think it was in 18, let me go back and look real quick, where he talks about son of David. And he says, so then why is the son of man called the son of David? And he makes, he challenges them on that. Do you remember that? And what was it that he was trying to point out to them about himself that they had not, that he... Yeah, okay, so it's in, it's in chapter 20, actually, verse 41 to 44. And he said to them, then how is it they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he David's son? So what is it at this point, we're into chapter 20, so it's only four chapters ago, right? So we're all the way at the end of his ministry, really closely approaching the cross, correct? What does he want his disciples and those that are listening to him in this conversation, what does he want them to understand about who the son of David would be? That he is actually son of God, that he's actually God himself, that he's not just a man, 
right? Son of David or son of man, but that he is son of man who is God in flesh. I really wish that that title Emmanuel had been in the book of Luke because I really want to tie it back. I think it's in Matthew, but you know, the title Emmanuel, God with us, is what he is literally telling them in this particular thing. I don't know if you wrote it down or not, but in your on your observation worksheet in the side, you might want to put that that particular word. Uh, it's in Matthew one twenty three, Emmanuel, God with us. You might want to write that into your notes just so that you see that that was his point. He wanted them to not under to understand that he was not just son of man, not that he was just not even he was not just um, a man, but that he was God come in flesh, which is why David called him his Lord. Okay, so this tells us the title Son of Man becomes very strong in this book. And then there's several others that almost he overlaps him, which shows us that he's embracing the fullness of who he is. And he's trying to convey that to us. But his major emphasis is he wants us to understand that he's the Son of Man. Now, in our study, kind of on the side, not in your homework, but that I kept taking you back to is what did we learn about Son of Man that really takes us to a systemic beginning place in this? Where is this this term Son of Man take us to? There you go, all the way back to the Garden of Eden because the Son of Man came for specific purposes, right? And he's in particular, he himself quotes right out of Isaiah when he presents himself in Nazareth and says, today these things have been fulfilled in your hearing. And he makes a list in that uh, Old Testament prophecy that he quotes about some of the things that he's going to be doing, right? And what did the, what did that list accomplish that goes back again to Genesis chapter 3? Yeah, he's literally going to crush, as son of man, he comes to crush the head of Satan. Who was it that tempted man in the garden? Eve in particular, and Adam as well, who did not also adhere to king who is God in the garden. God who was their king, God who was their creator, God who was their master. They they violated that relationship with God and turned to Satan and said, I'll listen to you, I'll give you my ear. And he... Without it being stated, he he literally moved the scepter from the hand of God into the hand of Satan, and man began to bow at this point to Satan. So what God says, in order that I redeem you, I'm going to come back as a seed, son of man, and I'm going to crush the head of that Satan, that one who tempted you. Yes, hallelujah, aren't we happy, right? And in that fall, there were consequences beyond the fact that God was no longer king, right? That, that sin had entered in, what else had happened? What, what were some of the other consequences that we see Jesus performing in his text, in, the book, in this particular book of Luke? What is he performing and doing? Conquering death, for one thing. He raises people from the dead. And ultimately, as we see this week, himself, he is raised from the dead. So he is conquering death. Casting out the demons, which is one of the things he did over and over, and he would cast them out. And it would, and I love the fact that the text would actually say, and they submitted to him. 
basically he had the power and the authority that he even could cast out demons. There you go. There you go. Right. So he he takes care of all the issues that came up in the Garden of Eden through his coming as son of man, who is the seed promised to Adam and Eve, the same seed promised to Abraham, right? The same seed in, in Galatians chapter 3 that says, and that seed is Christ, okay? And so he came, he conquered sin, conquered death, he conquered disease, he conquered the enemy of satanic powers, Satan, and he and he reinstates himself as what? The king. Right? That's what I was well, exactly what I just said. He's now the king. Because he comes to be the son of man. He comes to uh, bring back uh, that relationship between God and man. And in that bringing that relationship back to wholeness, he also gives a promise about something that's coming in the future. And what is that? The kingdom of God. That one day the kingdom of God is going to come. Now, there's an interesting caveat to, or, or twist, I think, in the way that he presents the kingdom of God. He almost always presents his coming to instill or to institute that literal physical kingdom of God but he also speaks of something that's going to happen for those who don't enter into the kingdom of God into that glory what about others there'll be judgment so when he comes again it does he come for judgment or does he come for uh your for your um your entering into that kingdom right one of the storylines that we looked at one of the recorded uh, uh portions that he gave to us which was in Luke 16 was an example of what your in your in demise is going to be your choice comes down to two things either you'll be like the rich man or you're going to be like Lazarus now what happened to the rich man when he died he went to the place of torment right and what about uh, uh, Lazarus where did Lazarus go he went to the place paradise. And Jesus said to the man on the cross last week, what? Today you should be with me in paradise. Why did he say that to that man who was a thief, who was being hung on a cross for actually a crime? Why was he able to say that to him? Literally, he, made a, he made his confession and he acknowledged that Jesus is who Jesus is. Right. And in making that confession of faith, Jesus then turned to him and said, today you should be with me in paradise. Wasn't that an amazing lesson too to go back and look at how that all happens and where we go when we die. OK, so this is about the son of man. So now we've we've kind of recapped. Uh, the the bigger picture of what's going on in this book. Jesus is the Son of Man. Now let's go into some of the subjects that were uh, also covered. We looked at, as we just said, Kingdom of God. So let's just add that one on. What were some other subjects that came up for us in this book that you would consider major? If you were just to think in your, you know, think back over everything we've looked at, what are some of the major subjects that pop out to you that we've seen in this book? Demonics, the spiritual warfare, okay. 
That's a good one. The spiritual warfare. What else did we see in major subjects? And okay, his miracles. Okay, we'll just kind of grunt. I'm going to glump it all together. Miracles. Now, what were the what was the purpose, by the way, for the miracles? Did Jesus perform miracles just to put on a great show? Right. So he literally was fulfilling scripture by doing those miracles. But what is the purpose of the miracles? There you go. To show who he is, to show that he is God. And in showing them that he is God and doing something as powerful as a miracle, then what is the what should be the response? One of the things we studied so far was one time about Corazon and Bethsaida, and he says if these miracles had occurred in those cities, like they have in your cities that I've walked in and performed miracles in, what would they have done? Repented. So repentance becomes another major subject. And a matter of fact, we did a bunch of work on repentance this week, yes? Mm-hmm. So you think the miracles are? Oh sure, oh sure. There are a lot. There are going to be lots of additional subtleties of insight and learning that you can gain from almost everything. I mean, often when we, when I especially take you guys back through and we're just kind of recapping things, we aren't going into any deeper. You can take almost any one of these subjects and go much deeper in. Well, what about this? And how about that? And how would that have affected this or that? You know. So yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the purposes of, of all of his works are probably multifaceted. But what we see on the whole in this book is he performed miracles. And often before he performed the miracles, he would say or ask them a question. What was it? Do you remember? Or he would make com uh, um, comment about this concerning them. Like, for instance, Yes, your faith. So it seems like miracles and faith are very closely linked in this particular book. Now, I don't know if that's true in the others because I didn't you know, observe it that carefully, but I'll bet it's similar. One of the primary purposes for miracles was to bring people into faith, right? As a matter of fact, often he didn't, he, I, I don't really see that many times when he shows a, I don't actually, I can't think of any. Uh, of him showing a record where he healed the disciples of anything miraculously. He probably did, but they're not recorded. Did you notice that? The, the times when miracles are recorded is in association with him drawing people into faith. What do you believe about the Son of Man? What do you want the Son of Man to do for you, right? Or what is it that you believe? Or like the, um, the centurion, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. 
The man didn't even have to have Jesus come into his presence. And he says, listen, I command people who were under me. I say, and they do. And he says, you don't even have to come, basically. And Jesus says, wow, that's faith. I haven't seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. So he, his purpose, I think, in these miracles, it seems, in the book of Acts in particular, at least, that his focus is that they understand faith. And that by faith comes healing. Because what is the connection between physical earth and that physical healing and, and a spiritual truth? What is the spiritual truth? What is the real healing that we need? Is it physical? I need a broken arm fixed. I need a demon cast out. I need, you know, my fever to go. I, I need, or I even need to be raised from the dead. Is that really my greatest need? No, my greatest need is my relationship with God. Because ultimately, if I don't have the, the true healing that I need from God, which is where he's drawing, he's drawing them there. Why do the miracles? Because he wants them to see he is who he is. And if they can come to believe that God is who he says he is, then they will believe on him and they will get the ultimate healing, which is the salvation of their soul. Right? So the things that he did in his earthly ministry were a means to an end. That's basically what I'm trying to say here, right? So repentance is one of the primary subjects that came up. Let's let's cover that really quickly. And I'm not going to write any of this down, but I have a long list. I just want to go over it with you real quickly. Because I think it's such an important subject matter for the book on the whole. The, cons the, the whole premise that Jesus operates off of is he came to seek and to save the lost, right? How do you get saved? What, what's, yeah, faith, obviously. You, you have to believe that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is, right? What is the evidence of real faith? A, a re repentance that then is demonstrated through a life that is being sanctified. Absolutely. How do I, how do I see that? Remember, there's a, um, I'm thinking it's in Luke where he says, um, in keeping with repentance, show fruits of it, right? There should, you should bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This is what he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees who came out, for instance, to John the Baptist when he was baptizing and he's saying, look, what, you know, what brought you out here? You, what do you call them? Brood of vipers, right? Who warned you of the coming judgment, right? And he says, look, if, if there's a true repentance, there should be fruit bearing in this. So let's go back and look at your, your homework on that. Um, I think it was day two, maybe, homework. One? Oh, day four. Was that late, huh? Okay. I didn't write it on my notes here. What page are we on? We're on page 113. You're right. Day four. There it is, right there in front of my face. Okay. So go to page uh, 113 and 114. And let's, let's just do verbally a run through on what we learned about repentance. So in Luke 3, and hopefully you have these scriptures printed out for yourself somewhere. One of the things I've learned to do through through the years of doing inductive Bible study is when she gives you a long rendition of verses like this, I just go through and do a cut and paste onto a sheet of paper like this, 
so, and then put them right into my notebook. And I, I highly recommend you do that. It just saves you a lot. It also is very helpful for class discussion, right? So you can go back and see it very quickly. Now, the only bad thing about this is it only gives you the one verse. It doesn't give you the context all around it. But at least you have the one verse in front of you, okay? Okay, so tell me, what did you learn in Luke 3, 3 and 8 about repentance? Oh, there it is. Yes. Oh, my gosh. You're right. Okay. So, look, <laughs> I knew I'd heard it somewhere before. <laughs> Repentance is to be, basically, then, is to be seen by the fruits in your life, right? So, you can make a confession. As a matter of fact, we had a lovely Sunday school class yesterday. Is anybody in? Yes. Right? Oh, you weren't in the Sunday school. You were out in the, Okay. Oh, shame on you. You missed a great one. So, so <laughs> I'm only kidding. All right. All right. So, we had we had a uh, a teacher in my Sunday school class yesterday, my ABF they call it here, um, that was talking about um, you can know that someone is saved or not, right? And so he kind of danced on it from all sides and played, you know, sometimes a little bit the devil's advocate on things. Well, what about this and what about this? Um, but one of the things that came up was this very subject about the evidence thereof. If, in fact, there's a true salvation in your life, what should be present? The fruit of the Spirit. There should be evidence of it. You can't... This is why Jesus speaks in another place. I think it's in Matthew where he says, there'll be many who say unto me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these miracles? And Jesus will turn to them and what will he say? I never knew you, be gone from me, into everlasting, what? Darkness. So this is not like, oh, I'm just ashamed of you, shame on you for not living up to what you confessed with your lips. He's saying the confession of your lips was not a true repentance. So in this book, okay, see, this is really super important stuff for you and I to really grab hold of because as we are trying to walk, most importantly, our own family members into faith, our young children, our young grandchildren, our you know, I'm not too far from being great grandma because I got a granddaughter marrying this summer. So it's, you know, when these little ones are, no way, can you believe it? No, oh, not Samantha, my Riley, Riley, the oldest one. It's actually Jimmy's daughter. I know, really, Samantha's having a baby? No, she's 12. <laughs> she's not Mary. <laughs> not happening. <laughs> but I'm, but I'm thinking, you know, if, if we are going to lead people into salvation, and this is the whole point to doing Luke, is to really train ourselves up into understanding the gospel message and the and the heart of it, the, the basis of what we absolutely have to get across to people. And the first one is repentance. But if you're going to get to repentance, what must they first understand about themselves? That they are as sinners. So in verse 3, it says about repentance what? In Luke 3, 3. There you go, for forgiveness of sins, the repentance of forgiveness of sins. You have to help a person come to a place where they actually see their sin because if they don't see their sin, they don't see their need for for a Savior, right? If they think they're an okay person, well, I'm not so bad as this and not so bad as that. Didn't Jesus even cover that, remember? He says, um, don't think that you're safe because you're Abraham's children. And what do you think that because those people fell in this way that they were greater sinners than you are? 
I mean, and he's saying, look, basically what he's doing is he's equalizing the consequence of sin. Sin is sin is sin. Big sins, little sins matters not to God. It's the concept that you have to understand you are a sinner. And as a sinner, what must you do? What do you need? You need a savior. You need, and you need to know the source of your salvation. Where can salvation come from? Can just anyone save you? So um, I wish Heinz were here today because I've been reading up. He, he was telling me about a, a religion that he's familiar with, and I've forgotten the name now, something like Baha'i. Somebody know that one? Baha'i? Uh, yeah, there you go. And we're all kind of okay and good. and yeah. And it's such a fluid kind of faith system that what it does is it through the generations can alter and change because since all paths lead to God, all religions are okay as long as you're seeking God. And the ultimate goal is that you become a good person, right? Wow. Okay, is that is that what scripture, is that what we've learned in Luke is the way we get our righteousness? Is that the way that we get made right with God? Is that where, that, that um, what is it that God says to us in Luke 3 then about, about sin? How do we deal with it? Repentance, right? You have to acknowledge that you are a sinner, and this this religion does not seem to deal with that very much. It's it's like so low on the totem pole. I think what they want you to do is to be a good person without really recognizing what sin is, and so therefore you fall into situational ethics. If it's okay to me, then it's just fine. As long as I don't think I'm hurting anyone, then it's okay. So there's no standard bearer. There's no there's no plumb line of what truth is in that kind of faith system. In our faith system, in the true, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to get to the Father except through me. None. There's no way there. And with, with some absolutes in place for us in God's word, who God is, he's our creator. Start in Genesis 1, right? He is our lawgiver, Genesis 1. Right, he is our savior by Genesis three, <laughs> because we didn't last very long, right? <laughs> and then the whole rest of the Bible talk, talks to us about how how it is to restore God as our King, to have that salvation given to us so that our sins are forgiven, that He will reinstate us back into right, right relationship with Him. Okay, so we see re re repentance leads to forgiveness of sins. So you have to understand you're a sinner. Um, and if it's true, repentance is going to be seen in the fruits of your life. You can't just give God lip service. And by the way, he, you can't get, just give the church lip service. If you are truly sorry, what will we see? A change in you from doing what you know God says is wrong to do, now doing what you know God says is right. And it, that is not works based that's important to understand you start in salvation and then you respond to god in obedience okay all right so then you got you go to chapter 532 again repentance mm -hmm. so he came he came to call those but and and he says to call those to repentance who are the those those who do what those who see their needs, see that they're a sinner. There you go. 
Very good. And to me, that was an important statement in that. I don't know how well you analyze that, but look, he didn't call, he didn't come to call the righteous. If you think you're okay, you're not willing to admit you're a sinner and you're not willing to see your need. I didn't come for you because until you come to a place of understanding that you are a sinner, I, I am not going to be your savior. You don't think you need one. But I came to save who? The sinners. So they recognize their own, seed, their own sin. They see their need for forgiveness and they desire to repent. Now, we don't always do that so perfectly, do we? Once we come into salvation, what often happens? We sometimes fall right back into the old bad habits, don't we? But God is patient. Isn't that awesome? And he keeps, he keeps on keeping on with us. And this is something I think I saw in yesterday's ABF discussion about who is saved and who isn't, is the fact that it's not about being perfect, but it's about the desire to please God. And that desire is placed in your heart at the moment of your salvation. And until then, according to 1 Corinthians 2, you don't even understand it. You can't perceive it or comprehend it because these are things that are, are spiritually discerned. You're given the mind of Christ when you're given the spirit of Christ. So salvation is the initiator and that those other things follow. Now, that's a message when you're preaching the gospel that has to be explained. Look, you are going to keep slipping up. It's going to happen. But what's important is how do you feel about it when you realize you've slipped up? When you see that you have sinned, what is your attitude toward your sin when you recognize you've sinned again? It isn't to say, oh, gosh, I'm hopeless. God can't do a thing with me, right? Like that hair wash. You know, I wash my hair and can't do a thing with it. Uh, God washed me, but he can't do a thing with me, right? That's not what, it, what God sees when he looks at you. What he sees is a, is a diamond in the rough, right? He wants to keep working with you. What's important on you and I's part is to express to people that in salvation doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you are perfectly loved, right? So in, in, in God's economy, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment and he desires to work with you to purify your life so he came to call those who see their need all right now you go into 15 7 and 10 this was exciting I loved this one I even did a clip art for you guys on this one and added it into my chart because this one really blew me away as I thought about it what does he say in 15 7 and 10 Wow. So that just kind of reiterates it. But the emphasis there is on the rejoicing that's going on in heaven. Now, why do you think that? Just kind of stop for five seconds and ponder this. Put your mind in the, in the heavenly realm where the angels sit literally face to face with their God. And when they hear or see that you repent, they rejoice. Okay, so the part, so the re, the rejoicing is about adding to the family of God. What else? Right. And that whole mystery. And 
see somebody with hymns, it 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 validates what Jesus. It's a vindication to the the purpose for the cross. It says, yes, it was worth it. Yes, it was. Because look at here, what's happening? Yeah. What else? Yeah, no. If, if you some of these are like subtleties, you can just read right past them and just keep going. But if you really stop to ponder them for a few minutes, for me, one of the things that came up was their perspective. Their perspective is who are they sitting in the presence of? God Almighty, the holy, the holiness of God, all engulfing, and they're looking at sinful man can you imagine the chasm that in their perspective there is between the two and when they see a sinner repent what do you think their their perspective is on our need they see how desperately wicked our hearts are how desperately how far we are from the holiness of who their God is, the God that they dwell in the presence of. And so if you think on it from that perspective, it's like, yeah, no wonder they rejoice. They're like, whoa, that filthy rag was able to come to a place of seeing their need, that God did that mighty work in their heart. No wonder they rejoice. It's got to be like, whoa. <laughs> That's just like, Lights are on and nobody's ever home, you know. So, right? He can, if he can reach into the heart of someone like Katie or like any one of us, right, and draw our hearts to see our need and to love him in response, to thank him in response, to believe on him, and therefore basically come into that salvation. This is a rejoicing moment in the heavens. Okay. Uh, Luke 10:13 and also 11:32. Those two were kind of this one we just discussed a little bit. What do we see here about repentance? What is Jesus using here to bring about repentance? Yes, and well, he 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 talks about those cities and he's saying about those cities, if what had happened in them. If these miracles had happened in those cities, what would they have done? The miracles? To bring repentance. He shows himself in a mighty, powerful way, a demonstration of love, grace, mercy, goodness. And in showing himself to them and in doing something powerful, really, the all-powerful God of the, of the universe, the one who breathed a word out and everything came into existence, this powerful God chose to do a miracle for you just to get your attention. And that miracle really, and rightly so, what should be the response when someone is raised from the dead or a demon is cast out or they're healed from an illness? Yes, and it should be both awe and thanksgiving, right? Worship then consequently follows on. Once you're, once you're on your face, once you're kicking and screaming in joy for delight of it all, right? Can you imagine those men on that, those 10 lepers who had been outcast from their community or the woman who had been hemorrhaging all of her life and she touches the hem of the garment of Jesus, remember? So these are people who have been literally in a place of, of 
exile, even in their own communities for years, truly in exile from the presence of their God if they hadn't come into repentance. Now he's saying, I'm going to physically heal you so that I can spiritually heal you. What an amazing thing. Miracles were intended to lead people to repentance. Uh, what else? In thir- We go to 13.3 and also 16, which is again Lazarus and the uh, rich man, right? What is the warning that Jesus gives? Yeah. So then in 16, we see what he means, right? In 16, he's demonstrated it to them, and he gives them that that picture of what's going on in the in the real. And by the way, this is not a parable. The rich man and Lazarus are named by name. Abraham is giving his very. We know who Abraham is. He's a historical person, right? So Lazarus, Abraham, and this rich man who is not named mercifully, right? Then God speaks and he speaks through them and he tells them, this is what happens to a person who loves me and this is what happens to a person who lives their life for themselves. And he shows it to, to us in Luke 16, the place of torment and the place of comfort, which is the, the place where now is empty, by the way. Why is it now empty, the place of comfort? When Jesus ascended on high, which is what we're going to look at today, by the way, Right? We look at today, he ascends on high to the Father. And what does it say in Ephesians 4.8? That's right. He leads a host of captives free. He takes those from the place of, of paradise that he told the man on the cross, today you should be with me in paradise. And at his ascension, he takes them with them with him to heaven. Absent from the body is now present with the Lord. We're all present with the Lord when we die now. There's no need for the place of paradise that was before the cross. Why was that place necessary before the cross? Why did there have to be a place besides in the presence of God for believing saints to to dwell? First fruits. Jesus had to be first fruits. Jesus had to be first fruits. Why? Because he had put his blood on There you go. His blood, that's the key. Prior to the cross, the propitiation had not been put upon the altar in the heavenlies. Prior to the cross, what were they using for blood? The animal blood, something temporary as a temporary covering until the propitiation would come, until the Lamb of God would come. Once the Lamb of God came and shed his blood, then when he ascended, he put that, according to Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, he put that blood upon the altar in the true tabernacle in the heavenly realm. And from that moment on, what was now open for us as believers? Being able to be in the presence of God, because before the blood was there, we could not be in the presence of God. Lovely storyline. Isn't that nice to have that all kind of ironed out in your brain now? Just all makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, then we looked at 1630. What do we know about repentance? How do you get repentance? How do you get to a place of repentance according to what's in here? 1630. I think you open your mind. And what are you opening your mind to? 
Jesus and the scriptures, right? So it, this is going to play really well into what we're going to see here on the road to Emmaus, for instance. When Jesus appears to these gentlemen on the road to Emmaus, what does he open to them? The scriptures, again. He, he, and he de declares himself through the scriptures once again. It's not a supernatural event he does in the beginning. I mean, he, the supernatural comes later when the revelation of who he is is revealed to them. But prior to that, he discloses that to them so that they don't know who he is. What does he take them to? The scriptures. And here it is again in repentance in 1630. Repentance comes by hearing the word of God and believing it. What does it say in 1630, by the way? What is that? Right. There you go. So they've got the prophets. And that's exactly what he's saying. He's basically saying the same thing. Look, they had the word of God, and they wouldn't believe the word of God. So somebody coming from the dead is not going to matter to them anyway. A miracle can happen. And this is where the fallacy was of the of the um, the scribes, the Pharisees, and all the other naysayers uh, that are recorded in Scripture. They didn't believe the word of the prophets concerning Christ. As a matter of fact, even the disciples had a little hard time with it, and they were wanting to believe, right? But it was being held back from them for purposes of God's uh, needing to, you know, finish the work. But they it, literally, very clearly, even in the the um, uh, Lazarus and rich man's account in 16, he's saying it was the word of the prophets that, that they should have believed on, and that's what should have brought them to repentance. But when they refuse to receive the word of truth, it does not matter what miracle happens before your eyes. It won't turn you. Have you known people in your life that you've tried to present the gospel to? And in their life, God has literally done miracles for them. Saved them from some kind of big disaster. Maybe healed them. Preserved their lives. Brought them through hardships. Brought them through difficulties. And in the end, they still say, ah, God's not for me. So it does not matter what miracles God does. If you don't believe the word of God, the miracles will not have an effect on your heart. And yet God does often use miracles to bring people who have the word of God given to them. They're already inclined to believe it. They've got an interest in that. Their hearts are tender toward it. They see their sin. They see their need. And so when the miracle occurs, boom, that leads them in. So it can happen both ways right? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But here he says the real important thing for you and I to understand, it's by the word of God that people come into repentance. So when you and I are out sharing the gospel, don't think that because you can't perform a mighty deed or a miracle that that matters. What is it that really transforms the hearts of people? The, the, the Holy Spirit working through the word of God. It's that word of God all right. Um, huh, this last one I thought was funny. 17. I don't know what her point was in saying this. <laughs> what, did, what did he say in 17? If your brother sins, what? Rebuke him. And if he repents, what? Forgive him. Now, she didn't take us any further than that, and I kind of wish she had. I'm going to give you guys a couple of verses for us to look at. Someone look to 1 Peter 1.15. 
Who wants that one? I want you to read it for me. Okay, Celeste has that. Uh, Matthew 6.14. Who has that one? Oh, okay, thank you. Um, and then Ephesians 5.1. Becky, you want to get that one? Okay, Ephesians 5.1. Great. All right, so let's go through these three verses because she didn't take us any further. It, it does say if someone repents, you need to forgive them. them. But why? What is the premise upon which we should forgive if somebody says I'm sorry right all right so let's read that first one first Peter 1 15 okay so that one is like the holy one who called you so the holy one who called you if you turn to him and say I'm sorry does God forgive absolutely all right so what about Matthew 6 14 Okay, so there's a principle that you're to have a heart just like the Father. And if the Father is forgiving, you're to be forgiving. And he says, look, he forgave you, so you should also be forgiving. Because what he's really saying is you're to be like your Father. If, in fact, you love the Lord, be like him. Be like your dad, right? Resemble him. He is a forgiving God. You be forgiving also. Um, there's so, so many in here. We go to First John. That's another great area. But let's do Ephesians 5.1. Wow. So here we are. Maybe it will be a sacrifice on your part also in your own way to forgive someone because maybe you don't feel like they really deserve it or maybe you don't even think they mean it. Certainly, at some point, there needs to be fruit in keeping with their repentance. If they're truly sorry, you should be able to see it in their life demonstrated. But you have to initiate that road or that path by saying, okay, and forgiving. Because that's what your father does. And you're to resemble your father, right? Okay. So that kind of goes, that takes us through basically all of Luke. We just covered Luke from beginning all the way to the end just about on that subject of repentance and we just barely touched on it. But you can see how this is such an important major subject in this book. It's, it's, it's one of those, um, uh, it's a subject that kind of is like everywhere in scripture and yet it isn't always the major thing that's being discussed, but it's the, seems like it's always the catalyst sort of back behind things. It's the, it's like the, the, the part of the, the broth of the soup. It's all the seasonings that are in there that are necessary to make it good, right? So you have to understand the subject of repentance. How do you get to repentance? Why do you come to repentance? And as you're talking to people about coming to a faith in Jesus Christ, if they're not willing to begin in a place of understanding their need and understanding what sin is and understanding that there's a lawgiver and his name is God, right? And if you're not willing to bow to the one who is the lawgiver, understand you've broken his laws and need repentance. Without that, then there is no salvation because it's through, sal it's through repentance that salvation is received. All right, now... Okay, so that gives us um, a good review on that particular subject of repentance. Now let's go to um, another major subject that we've looked at so far has to do with scriptures. What have we learned about the scriptures concerning Jesus? All prophecy, 
Yeah. So every place you see something about fulfilling all things written about him is an is a major reference that you have to understand it's part of this message. The message is all about there were prophecies made and Jesus fulfilled them. Now, why is that significant, do you think? Why do you think that's a significant uh, subject in our book? Why does Jesus keep bringing it up, by the way? Right. Okay. So I said I would do it. Now I've done it. Or God said he would do it. And God, now God has done it. And I am the one, I am that seed that he promised. Now, what does that do in about re, our relationship with God himself and with Christ? There you go. Right. Without him fulfilling the things that he said he would do, then how much confidence would we have about the things that are yet promised, right? And yet the fact that he has fulfilled them all. As a matter of fact, I have a, a chart in here, and I think I've probably shared it before. Let me pull it out real quick and just show you. Because these are really great little charts that you can pick up at any Bible bookstore. This one says 100 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. And I think there's there's more. I mean, there's like 300 and some odd I think they say 350 or something like that about uh, on the prophecies of Jesus, and then it, it shows you what the prophecy is and what and what Jesus did and how it's fulfilled, and it gives you this in chart form. You can see how Celeste is opening this up. It's so awesome, and it breaks it down by subjects about where he would born, be born through what nation he would come, what would be some of the things that he would accomplish, and things like this Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 61 and all these verses that Jesus quotes through the book of Luke are all referenced in a, a graph sheet like this one, which is so fantastic. But it shows you the prophecies made. Now, in this, for me, the strongest thing is what Celeste said is it gives me confidence in God. When God says he'll do something and then he does it, then I can trust him that the things that he said he will yet do, he will do, right? And how much of what was prophesied did Jesus keep emphasizing he would accomplish? All. Did you notice how Kay kept saying, did you notice the word all? And you're supposed to like circle it in your Bible and circle it on your observation worksheet. And it said more than once, like, three or four times, all things written of me must be fulfilled so that all things are accomplished, right? And I will do all these things. So he says this over and over through the text. That is the confidence we have, that when God says, look, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to institute a kingdom. And you're coming with me. And you will rule and reign with me. And it's going to be a glorious kingdom of my righteous ruling. And I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to reward you for the things that you've done in this life. And you're going to be given responsibilities to work as my helpmate in that kingdom to come. Did you know that? That you are going to work, you're, we are to come with him. As a matter of fact, this, the way that Revelation unfolds it, it de depicts us as the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ comes with his with their bridegroom when he returns. Revelation 19, it says, and we and his and his armies of heaven, that's us, we come with him. 
And when we come with him, we come to work as his helpmate, as his bride. And so we're going to serve him and serve the, the world in that 1,000-year kingdom rule that he has before us. But I think that even more exciting than that, although that's plenty of excitement, there's yet something else, and Kay alludes to it. It's the very last thing she had us look at in our homework this week. Um, and it was a little bit confusing the way that she laid it out, but it, it's still a nice one. And that is in Second Peter 3, 9 to 12, she had you look at um, the Lord and, and how he's not slow about his promises, right? The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Even the 1,000-year reign is a time of God reaping in more for his kingdom, right? Any who will come to him by faith in those years are going to be a part of his kingdom. And he says, then he goes on in 10 to 12 in that passage, and Peter speaks about the new heaven and the new earth. Now. I don't have it on this timeline here, but let's see. Let me do it this way. I'm going to get rid of part of this, okay? But here's our timeline. We're over here with Jesus in Luke, right? Jesus and the cross. After he ascends, what's going to happen is the church is going to be birthed, correct? He's going to send the Holy Spirit. We're going to have the church age. As history moves on, though, we're going to go through a time that's called the, the tribulation. By many, it's referred to as the tribulation. That's that seven-year period, right? Uh, this is when... Luke depicts it as what? What does Luke tell us about that time frame? When he comes, what what is it that he warns us about? The wrath. There's going to be wrath. It's going to talk, he even talked about the hills, that the people would cry out that the hills would fall on them, right? Do you remember that? Um, let's see if we can find it. What chapter is that in? Does anybody know? 18? 16, 17, 18. No, it might be before. Flip through until you find it. First one to find it gets the star. 23. Okay, well, let's see. So 23, 30. Yeah, behold, days are coming. Very good. Thank you, star for the day, Miss Becky. Okay, he starts in chapter 23, verse 26, and it goes all the way down to 31. In 26, he's, he's talking about, um, he's carrying the cross, right? The man, uh, Simon of Cyrene, he comes from the country, and they give him the cross to carry for Jesus. This is as Jesus is going to the cross. Um, following behind him a large crowd of people and the women who are mourning and lamenting. And Jesus turns to those women who are lamenting and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. What are they to do? Weep for yourselves and for your children. Then he goes on to say why. Why? For behold, the days are coming. Now, anytime that phrase, days are coming, 
is a reference to the end times. So this is this time, this tribulation, this seven-year time frame here on the timeline. He says, and the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. These are all quotes out of Hosea. You see it in Isaiah. Revelation 6.16 specifically, when it, the revelation is given to John, he even actually shows in his text a place where they're calling the mountains to fall on them. And he says, for they do these things when the tree is green. What will happen when it is dry? He's talking about the days of tribulation that are come upon, going to come in the future upon the earth. So we see in our timeline here this seven-year time that Jesus speaks about. But then following that, what? Is his kingdom, right? And his second coming. He comes at the end of that, second coming. And he's going to set up his kingdom. At the end of that kingdom then, according to First Peter, what's going to happen after that thousand years? We're going to have the new heaven. This is not writing very well, sorry. New heaven. Right? And new earth. That's exactly right, because the earth will have been destroyed by fire. So there's the new heaven and the new earth. That's what we're looking for. This book covers all of history. Did you notice? We literally went from the Garden of Eden where man sinned, where God was dethroned. He takes us all the way through. He gives us the seed who's going to redeem us because of that fall. And he takes us all the way to the very end the coming of the kingdom, and eventually which follows that is that new heaven and new earth. And in the new heaven and the new earth, what? No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, nothing evil ever enters in, right? Now, that thousand-year reign, what do you think is going to be going on there? There's going to be some pain and sorrow, but what is what is it that we have to working to our advantage for that thousand-year reign? We will have a, a new body with no more pains, <laughs> and in many ways, no more sorrows because of that. Thank you, Lord. So we get to go through that 1,000-year reign with Christ. We will be his bride. We will come as his helpmate. Right, And if God promised concerning Jesus' first coming and he fulfilled every single prophecy, then how are you to feel about the things that he's promised concerning those things which are yet future? It's going to happen. You can be absolutely 100% confident God will accomplish every single word, which kind of makes studying Revelation a little bit scary. However, I personally am a pre-rapture girl, so I plan on being out of here before all this stuff happens during those seven years. But regardless, whether you, we are or whether we are not, we know God is with us, and if he leaves us here to go through it, we can endure it. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, right? But I do truly believe he says that we are not destined for wrath and therefore I believe that we are not going to be here. But that's your timeline for the ages right there. And we got it all out of the book of Luke, right, in our homework this week. Yes, it is. It is getting closer and closer. And you know what's really exciting is as we're watching it, we're seeing 
so many fulfillments, things that, you know, God bringing Israel back onto their land, their language being reinstituted, governments, world powers are coming together, right? And every single day there's a new book out by another prophet in our present age who's writing about the things that they're seeing God revealing to them about what's happening. Uh, there are pastors all over the internet that you can, now you have to be careful and listen with a discerning ear, but lovely store, lovely uh, sermons all about the, the coming new age that we're looking forward to and how they're seeing various um, uh, political entities in our world today lining up to make this all happen. It's going to be fantastic. I cannot wait. I'm looking forward to the day when we're there. Okay, so now we're ready to go through 24. So we've looked at, uh, let me just mention to you Jesus' mission, though, because we see his mission, and this kind of can be an outline. You know, we talk about segment divisions. There aren't really super clear segment divisions in Luke, but I'm going to give you some that I think are kind of like just an outline for the book in general. Certainly, some of the topics I'm going to give you in these segment divisions, they overlap into other chapters, okay? So, so don't think they're clear defined segment divisions, but it's more like this is a progression I see of God, of uh, Christ and his ministry as son of man. Okay, so his mission came to us, we see in Luke 1 to 4, it's most mostly laid out for us in chapters 1 to 4. If you look at 443, somebody read that verse. What was his mission? Four forty three. What does he tell us he came to do? Okay. Okay, so he came to preach the kingdom of God. Okay? That is his first primary mission, and he lays that out in chapters 1 through 4 most clearly, indicating why he's come. Then in Luke 5 to 8, what does he do? It, look at verse 532. I'm hoping this will help you kind of break it down a little bit into segments because we don't we didn't really get to do that in this book. It's pretty hard, I think, to do. But Luke, and part of it has to do with this. You know, when you're in the Gospel of John, for instance, you can mark it off by by the uh, holidays that are come each of the feasts, right? And so you can say, okay, here's year one, here's year two, here's year three. Well, this one, we only get the very beginning of his ministry. Then we skip basically about a year and a half of it, and we pick up about two and a half years in, and we get uh, most of the focus in the last six months. So it's very hard to give segment divisions in this particular book. So, so what does 532 say? What did he come to do? Okay, so he came to call sinners to repentance. All right, so that's the second part of his mission. First, he came to preach the kingdom of God, and secondly, he came to call sinners to repentance. Then we see in Luke 9 to 19, somebody read uh, 951.
Okay, so he came determined to go to the cross, right? Okay, then the last segment I saw in here as a potential is Luke 22. It's actually going to be all the way through 24, so let's just put it that way. 22 to 24. Um, this one, I, have, I struggled with which title to put on it, so we'll talk about a couple of different ones. What does 2347 say? I've forgotten even what I picked. 2347. There you go. So he, certainly this man was innocent. And what happened to this innocent man? He was condemned and crucified, right? So he, what was his mission? He came to be unjustly condemned and crucified. Why is that an important part of his mission? Who did he come for? Sinners, not the righteous, not the ones who don't think they need it. He came for the sinners. Again, so he came to be unjustly condemned and crucified. The other, the other part of this could also be, I think, as a segment division, is simply to fulfill scripture, right? As that condemned uh, sacrifice. I wanted to even put to be the Lamb of God, but that's not in our text anywhere. So I was kind of reaching for that one. Um, he came... To be unjustly condemned and crucified. And in 24, what? And then to resurrect. Okay. So he came to be un unjustly condemned and crucified, but then he was going to resurrect from the dead. That's the power over sin and death. That's the victory in that mission that he came. He came to do these things. The ultimate goal then was to, for resurrection because it's in the resurrection is our victory, right? It's through that that we have our victory over sin and death. Without his resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15, what? If there is no resurrection, what? We are above all men to be what? Pitied. Because if Christ has not been raised, then we will not be raised. And if we will not be raised, we have believed what? In vain. So it's all about the resurrection and what he came for us to do. 19, oh, I don't know. I, I told you it was loose. <laughs> 19 to 20? 9 to 20? Eight, nine. All right. Well, let's just add it in there. I don't know. So, right. In chapter 20, it starts about his uh, being um, convicted. I mean, they're challenging him. They're calling him on things, and they're trying to figure out how to, how to crucify. Right. Okay. So you can add 20 in there. Okay. I told you it was loose. It was, it was kind of a last-minute thing I thought of last night, and I thought, you know, it would be nice if we had segment division. We really have none. The only way I can kind of break this down in my mind is he had a mission, right? He came for a purpose. And as the Son of Man, the design purpose, according to what we've looked at in Genesis 1, as our connection to Son of Man, is that he came to... Um, reinstate and to redeem and to 
put back right what we made wrong, right? To basically to save us. So he came to seek and to save. So that was how I tried to give you some kind of a segment division in that. All right. All right. So now let's go on and let's look at, we've only got about 20 minutes, but I don't think it'll take us that long. I think the rest of this is pretty simple. We looked at 1 to 12, and what did you see in 1 to 12 is the major emphasis or storyline that he's trying to emphasize to you. What did, what did they see and what happened there? The empty tomb. 1 to 12, the empty tomb. Now, we could expound on that and talk about things like there are witnesses. Who were the witnesses? The, those women that went there, right? And there were other women with them, so there's quite a group of women. Um, also, who else in verse 12? Peter is also a witness, correct? Now, um, there are also, uh, an, uh, I almost consider it as a sign, but not exactly, but who was at the tomb when they got there? the two angels, right? We see in verse 23 that they're declared as angels. In, in verse 4, it looks like they're just men. But connect it with verse 23 because there it, it clarifies these are angels. So what did the angels tell these women when they saw the tomb was empty? Why are you looking for the living one among the dead? Because why? Did he not tell you? That he must die, be crucified, buried, but then what? On the third day he shall rise again. Now this is so important. You know, it, the emphasis about Jonah and the three days, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth is very strong in the book of Luke. I've noticed more so than the other gospels. And so he mentions it like at least two or three other times in other storylines as we went through Luke. But now again, here we are in chapter 24, and it's mentioned a couple of times. Is this not the third day, right? So it's, it's made a strong emphasis. So that timeline that we did last week where we laid it out to see three days and three nights, you cannot shorten that right? We also know that because he rose on the first day of the week, the day before the first day of the week is their Sabbath, right? But before that, they had had their other Sabbath, their Passover Sabbath, which was the, for the first day of unleavened bread. So we were able to map it out. We begin darkness and then light, darkness and light, because that's how they measure their days. And we could count it out exactly three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. And on the first day of the week, at what time, according to Luke 24 at the beginning here? Very early in the dawn, just as the, as the darkness becomes day, he had risen from the dead. Because when they got there, it was that early. It was almost daylight. It was just approaching daylight, but he was already gone. Right? Three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So cool. Okay. And it was the third day as Jesus had told them, okay? Then we looked at uh, 13 to 35. I love the fact that the guys, how did the disciples respond to those women? Oh, surely you're next. Well, I, can you blame them? Can you bl I know that they, they're like, what are you saying? Now, this was interesting. Uh, one, of the pa one of the sermons I listened to, the pastor brought up the fact, he said, you know, some people talk about how um, uh, they could have plotted this and had planned it and 
um, maybe st stolen his body away. But one of the, the safe key guards to that is the fact that the Roman government put guards on the tomb, right? So that nobody could do that, correct? But secondarily, look at the response of these people. Look at the response of these disciples here in Luke 24. Are they expecting that the body should have still been there? Were these people who were plotting to try to seal it away and make it this fictitious, you know, claim that he had risen from the dead? No, they were, they were so stunned. And they're going, no, come on, you're nuts. They just didn't even believe these women. So it was like the furthest thing from their mind to, to plan a farce to pretend that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They were totally shocked. And in the next one, when we get to 13 to 35, these are two men on the road to Emmaus, correct? Now, who are these two men? Where did they come from? They were part of the, that disciple group. Apparently, not just the 11 are at, in that uh, gathering, but there's a lot more. As a matter of fact, if you go into Acts chapter 1, it says that at the time when the Holy Spirit fell, there was over 120 people in a room with them. So there was a large following of people. It wasn't just the 12 and just a few disciples. There was, and there was all these women, and there were these other disciples there. And every time it makes mention of it in, in our uh, chapter 24, it says, and the others that were with them. It just doesn't say how much, but in Acts, it actually tells you 120 were in the room at the night of the falling of the Holy Spirit. More than 120. Interesting, huh? So in 1335, we see, so we have the empty tomb and we see it witnessed, correct? And she asked you to list how many witnesses there were. And why is that profound? Why is that important? There you go. Yeah. So we looked in Deuteronomy. We also looked in Matthew 18 and 2 Corinthians 31 where these things are referenced. But the primary law came right out of Deuteronomy 9, the Old Testament law, which they knew, right? And that one says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So there were more than two or three witnesses to Jesus' empty tomb. So this is profound. This is an, an important, almost a legal fulfilling of law for uh, this particular record. So the empty tomb is witnessed. Now what happens in 1335? Yeah, he appeared to two men on, um, on the road to Emmaus. Okay, now what do we learn about them? Well, we did learn one of their names, right? Who is he? No. No. That's not Peter. No, it's Cleophas. It's his name. C-L-E-O-P-H-A-S. And that's in 2418. Cleophas, right? The other one is never named. We just know he's among the other disciples. But what he, what I think you're confusing is the fact that it does sound similar. But here later in verse 34, it says the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon, Simon Peter. That's where you, but that doesn't mean he was the one on the road to Mesa. It says that he has also appeared. Now, 
this is the time to ask the question then. How did they know that Jesus had appeared to Simon also, or Simon Peter? Maybe. Okay. Well, because here it is, it says, they, these two men, got up that very hour after Jesus had presented himself. They returned to Jerusalem and they found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, now they're saying to these who are gathered, the Lord has really risen and he's appeared to Simon. Now, why would they say that? Oh, the Lord appeared to me, little old Cleophas. But the, he appeared to Simon. If you're not going to believe my testimony, who's got the big guns? You can believe it when Peter, because Peter's going to show up pretty soon. He's going to tell you he appeared to him too. Now, how did these two men find out that Jesus had appeared to, to Peter? Jesus had to have told them. <laughs> No, well, no, I mean, well, he may have gotten there, he may have told them that, but these two men are the ones speaking, and they're saying, and he appeared to Simon too. So that now a supernatural thing has happened on two sides. Number one, how would these two men know that Jesus had appeared to, to Peter? He is, but has he told him? No. They just showed up. They're all excited. Guess, guess, guess what? Jesus, he really has risen. And he appeared to Peter too. It's a confirmation. It's a supernatural. Well, who told you that he appeared to me? He did appear to me. How did he? Who told you that? Do you see what I'm, the scenario that's being set up here? It's like, first of all, even if you don't believe me, believe Peter. Peter saw it too. And by the way, I know that he saw Peter because why? Jesus told me. Okay? So it's kind of this, this, it's like a confirming of a confirming of a confirming. And it's, he told us too, yeah, we're kind of low down on the totem pole of maybe being credible or having authority here. But Peter, he appeared to Peter too. Well, then he no more than finishes that sentence. And then what happens? Boom. Jesus is right there in their midst. And if that wasn't enough for you, now he's going to appear to all of you. Right? Isn't this exciting? I wanted to be in that room so bad. <laughs> I'm just, it was just the coolest thing. Okay, if, now, what happened to them, though? This is the best storyline, talking about a neat storyline. In verse 16, what happens when they first meet him? They don't recognize him. Why? They are prevented from recognizing him. Now, their question should be, why would Jesus prevent them? If, in fact, the point is, I'm resurrected. See, here I am. If his point was to prove himself resurrected from the dead, why would Jesus start this initiation with them by concealing that from them on purpose? Well, tell me what does Jesus do with them? He takes them to the scripture and tells them again, as if he hadn't done it enough already, but again he tells them all the things that they need to know about what the Christ would be like when he came. When the Son of Man comes, he's going to do this, he's going to do this, he's going to do this, he's going to do this. These are the things that are going to happen. Now, I made a little block here for you. I'm just going to read it off for, because of our time. Uh, in 4.17-21, to 21, Jesus began his earthly ministry quoting from Isaiah 61 that uh, 
that prophecy stating that his mission, what his mission was and how it was to be fulfilled, that he was going to begin to fulfill it at that point. So he makes a quote of scripture and tells him exactly what he's going to do. He did that way back in chapter four. So they've heard this before, but it wasn't registering, right? So he's telling them again now here to these men on the road to Emmaus. Back in 1831, Jesus told them what was prophesied about the Son of Man would happen to him in Jerusalem, and he detailed it. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to go to the tomb, and then I'm going to resurrect. But again, it was being withheld for total disclosure on them understanding because it needed to be fulfilled. And so God was holding that back from them. So although they had been told before, it wasn't registering. So now Jesus, with these two men, pulls out the scripture and he takes them back through it again. And now they're going, oh, yeah, he did say that. Oh, yeah, I remember that, right? The real crescendo in this, when the clanging of the cymbals really occurs, is at the dinner table. What happens at the dinner table? In the breaking of bread, what happens? Their eyes are opened. Who opened their eyes? Jesus did. If he had discovered had concealed them before now he's opening them he breaks the bread and in that moment he opens their eyes so that they recognize him and lo and behold they sat there all night long and had a great conversation no what happened Poof! he's gone <laughs> he was there now you see him now you don't right and i'll bet that for just a moment they were probably sitting there going where'd he go what happened right? Did he go to the bathroom? Did you see him get up? <laughs> I mean, there had to be some mystical thoughts going on in their little heads. That would be a shock for one. Number two, they're also still in shock because they just saw the risen Lord. The man that they saw crucified, beaten probably beyond recognition on the day of his crucifixion. And they now sat at the dinner table. They just realized he took them all through these scriptures that they have been. That was only two I gave you, one in, uh, about, about his suffering. In 20, he told them that he would be the rejected stone that scripture spoke of. Remember, I am going to be that cornerstone that's going to be rejected. He also gave them at that same time a parable about a man, a landowner, and his sons. First he has uh, workers that are there. He sends his, his servants, and then he sends his own son, and they kill him also. And the whole thing, and it said at the end of that, they knew that the parable was about them. They knew. Those Pharisees understood it. Amazing. So he reminds him those two men about that. He reminds them in 22, about 2237, where he quoted Isaiah 53 and said that what was written must be fulfilled in him, and it was being fulfilled. Do you remember the, that particular verse was where he talked about the sword, and I must be numbered among the transgressors. Well, what made him a transgressor? He allowed them to bring two little tiny swords with him to the garden so that they would look aggressive. <laughs> and that would make him a transgressor according to law of Rome that, oh, they had weapons and we had to arrest them, right? But it gave them the standing to do what they did, which is what he wanted. But he says, how was he numbered as a transgressor? I did it and I'm telling you, it's being fulfilled right now. And in that moment, they came into the garden and they arrested him. 
not because of the swords, but the swords were present. And I think the swords were present because he needed to be seen as an aggressor. Now, earlier, he had not had a sword. Remember, don't take a sword. Don't even take a money belt when you go out. He wasn't allowing them to have weapons. Why not? He came in peace. He did not want his mission and his ministry to be perceived as militant, which so many of the Christs who were showing up on the scene were coming as militants. They came to conquer and to be the king. That's what they, they thought the Christ was going to be when he first came. But he came not to do that. So he wouldn't allow them to have weapons in the beginning, but then just before this event, he says, yes, take two swords, it's enough. It's enough to get us marked as transgressors. <laughs> so he fulfills that thing. That's that thing in his in the healing in their hearing. Um, okay, so now the breaking of bread, their eyes are open, and that very hour, then they return to Jerusalem, right? And then he says that he had appeared. Jesus had appeared to Simon. And Simon is Simon Peter. Well, that comes later, after the resurrection. Well, he did tell them that they would need to wait for, um, yeah. Certainly, for one thing, he wanted them all stay, kind of stick, not to just scatter, because then he would be all over the place to find them. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I hadn't thought of that, Kathleen. That's a good point. That maybe they had, were kind of going outside of what God had said to do, and so he went looking for them. It's like the sheep, the lost sheep. I'll go for just one. In this case, it was two. That's interesting. Good point. Okay, so that's um, 13 to 35. Jesus appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus. Then we go to uh, 36 to 43. And who does he appear to there? Who is it? To the 11, right? The 11 uh, disciples that are left. The two men from the road to Emmaus are present at that time. Also others that are with the apostles, according to 933. Um, and when he appears to them, what does he give them as evidence of his true resurrection? Here, touch me. What else? He says, see? See my feet? See my hands? What, what was it that he was wanting them to see? Those nail wounds, right? Those covenant scars in the hands of his hands and feet. Okay, and then the last thing he does, which is really cool at the end of 43, is what? Hey, do you got something to eat? Why do you think he did that? Yeah, to show he's not just spirit. He literally had, what does that therefore tell you and I about our resurrection? We're going to eat <laughs> and not gain weight, but you only get to but but we only get to eat fish. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Well, drink wine too, because Jesus said we'll have wine and bread with him in, ha in the kingdom to come, right? Wine and bread and fish sounds like a good dinner to me. Although I wouldn't really. I hope I'm not allergic to wine in, when I get the new body. <laughs> My headaches are terrible. All right, so awesome. 
So he proves, he gives demonstration that he actually literally has raised from the dead and that he has a physical body. It's not a spiritual resurrection of a spirit form, but it's a physical resurrection of a physical body. This is huge for you and I. For us to understand our resurrection is going to be a physical resurrection with a real body. See? Touch me. Give me something to eat. Right? Do what? Yeah, right. <laughs> 44... Yes, that was in the garden when he first resurrected at the early dawn. And what did he need to do? He still needed to ascend to the Father. He says, do not touch me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And And then he ascends to the Father. And what does he do during that first ascension? He lays that propitiation upon the altar. It's a, it's a symbolic. He literally is the blood of the lamb himself in his physical resurrected body. He walks into that temple and he is the crucified lamb. He is the blood of the altar. He is the perpetual, the, the propitiation for our sins and that blood therefore. And someone asked that in one of my other classes. Well, how did he get blood to go there? I'm going, I, I can't answer that part, but I know he goes there and the blood, if not, if, if only in its symbolic understanding, the blood was literally shed at the cross. Now he goes though before the father as a demonstration of being the lamb that enters into that holy place. And from that moment on then, what is open and gives access to us is the, is that blood. If he had not entered into the true heavenly tabernacle, we could not enter. But because he did, now we can. Therefore, then he returns to earth and he begins presenting himself alive. This is where we pick it up. So he goes early in the morning, sees the women at the tomb, makes an ascension to the heavenly, takes care of the propitiation at the altar, presents himself before the Father as the slain Lamb of God. Then he returns and begins showing himself alive all the same day yes we're all in the same day yes he does have a big day early that's why it says he got up early the early bird gets the worm yes okay so 44 to 49 then what does Jesus do he opens their mind to understand and what and what else And their mission, it's exactly, so basically he commissions his followers at this point. Now, there was a question Kay gave to us about also Matthew 28 and how does it line up with Matthew 28, which we know as being the Great Commission. Um, And what did you conclude about that? Yes, same thing said a different way. So basically, and and we do know that there's location differences between Matthew 28 and this one. So what does that tell you about his commissioning? Who's he commissioning? Is it just the 11? Anyone who is a follower of Jesus is given this commission. Isn't that exciting? That means you and me. 
That means it goes down to the ages to anyone who is a follower of Jesus. He say, he charges them to be his witnesses and to proclaim what they have witnessed to all the nations, right? And then he says, I'm going to provide a provision for you in this too, by the way. You're not going to go alone. What? He opens their minds so they understand the scriptures now, which before they didn't. And what's he going to send them? The promise of the Father. And what is that promise? The Holy Spirit. And the, the rest of this story gets picked up in Acts 1, right? And so then what happens? So Jesus commissions. Um, his followers, I just kind of generalized it rather than just the 12 because it's really for everyone. And then I went to 50 to 53 then, and that is, what does he do? Yeah, he blesses them and he is carried up into heaven. So this one does line up with Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11, I think it is, right? Where we see him ascending. So this is literally the ascension. So what we can see about this is that these commissionings, gathering people together, presenting himself alive, and then commissioning them is something that probably was repeated almost with every group that he presented himself to. Now I want you to go tell everyone. I want you to go tell everyone. I want you to go tell everyone right? And and the power is my word, and my spirit is going to be there to clarify in your mind the things that need to be clarified for you, right? And you won't be alone in it. I'm going to be with you. Matthew says, to the end of the age. That means every generation until his coming, he is with us as we go forth and proclaim his, his um, gospel. Amen. We did it. It's only